0: March 2010, age 27, I'm standing in the back of a mint green VW camper van called Maisie, sniffing a pint of milk to see if it is off. Sitting with his legs hanging out of the door of the van, my guest is complaining that my hobnobs are soft. Within a few weeks, he will be Deputy Prime Minister, except neither of us knows it yet. We're in Cornwall. I'm midway through my marginal mystery tour of the swing seats spread across my patch as London editor of the Western Morning News, an important newspaper in Devon, Cornwall and Somerset back then, of course, because they didn't have the internet, or television, or electricity. As a child of the Somerset levels, I'm allowed to make these jokes. I'd been in two minds about even bothering with the detour to meet Nick Clegg, the youthful leader of the Liberal Democrats, with a mere walk-on part in the blockbuster battle between Gordon Brown and David Cameron, but the sun was out and it would make some easy copy. I'd swung Maisie off the road onto the gravel car park of a Cornish tin mining company, and a Lib Dem press officer came bowling over very enthusiastically. They're always enthusiastic, Lib Dem press officers. They're just glad to see anybody, to be honest. So he pops his head through the window of the van and says, Great, have you got the refreshments? What? I've got down here on my itinerary, it says Matt surely is providing refreshments. He was right, that is what it said, but he was also wrong had got the wrong idea about the campervan. I hadn't been sleeping in it because it was so cold and wet and miserable in March, instead opting for pubs, B&Bs and mate sofas. So I also hadn't kept tabs on the four-pint bottle of milk I'd bought a week earlier. And that's how I ended up in the back of a campervan, detecting the dairy to make sure I didn't poison the man who would soon, amazingly, be the second most powerful politician in the country. I could have changed the course of political history with a curdled coffee. Given how the next five years were to unfold for the Lib Dems, Clegg probably wishes I had. The direction of British politics, and with it my life, your life, and those of less important people, has been decided on less, and in even more extraordinary and ordinary places. So much, arguably too much, of our daily national political conversation is about Number 10 Whitehall and the Houses of Parliament the shenanigans of the weird inhabitants of the so-called Westminster Village, a village no normal person would want to move to, as they strut the corridors of power, whispering in corners, practising high politics and low skullduggery, and feeling terribly important. And yet, so many of the key turning points, which have decided who runs the country and doesn't, and how they run it, or don't, have taken place not in the mock gothic, crumbling corridors and courtyards of the Palace of Westminster or the higgledy-piggledy terraced houses of Downing Street, nor in the windowless, halitosis hotspots of party conferences. Instead, they've played out in towns and cities and villages across the country, unlikely, often humdrum places where accidents happen that change everything. I've spent two decades reporting from Westminster joining the press gallery when Tony Blair was Prime Minister and David Cameron was on course to lose to David Davis in the Tory leadership contest. Since then, I've interviewed six of the last seven people who made it to be Prime Minister and reported from Downing Street and Brussels from the Houses of Parliament, Holyrood. In theory, these are the places where the big moments happen. Yet history is not fussy and can be made, in fact prefers to be made, away from the gaze of people like me. It unfolds at politicians' kitchen tables, in downstairs loo's and in the beds they weren't meant to be sleeping in. The everyday happens every day. There was a brilliant scene in Armando Iannucci's satire, In The Loop, a big screen spin-off of The Thick of It, where Simon Foster, a British government minister played by Tom Hollander, has to break away from attempts to prevent an Anglo-US invasion of a Middle Eastern country to deal with an eccentric constituent complaining about an unstable wall. Global politics must play second fiddle to the local. This portrayal of the constituency link retained by MPs and ministers alike sums up why British politics remains fascinating and reassuringly unpredictable. It is why Prime Ministers on parade get buttonholed by members of the public wherever they are, even if the TV cameras are watching, perhaps especially if the TV cameras are watching. This book celebrates those stories – The town halls and train stations, car parks and coffee shops, dentist chairs and desolate hillsides, beach huts and boarding schools where politicians changed history, most of the time without meaning to. So I drew up a few self-imposed rules. None of the places which changed politics could be in Westminster. They all had to be events that can at least tangentially be said to have changed politics. Sometimes the impact was instant, a new Prime Minister taking power, other times it would take months, even years, for the impact of the event to be felt. A political butterfly effect. And I wanted them to be unknown stories, not just well-worn tales told many times before. All of these rules are broken in the pages that follow. While I have sought a geographical and historical spread, the list is inevitably biased to the events and places I have witnessed or picked up along the way. The events are spread unevenly over the past 250 years – and across the UK. The whole project has been quite the journey, across the country and through time. It's taken me from a tiny museum in the pretty fishing village of Lossiemouth to an even smaller convenience store in central London. And I've gone deep into the National Archives at Kew and the National Theatre Archive at Waterloo, and deeper still into one particular swimming pool. I've visited many of the places, though not all. In fact, at most, there isn't really anything to look at. Not so much as a blue plaque. Quite right, too. No one likes a fuss. It would be horribly un-British. Before beginning this project, I'd assumed the lesson, if there were any, to learn from it would be that politics can happen in the most unlikely of places. Which is true. But more than that, this collection serves as a reminder that the word unprecedented should be used sparingly in politics. Perhaps not at all. Almost everything which consumes the breathless Twitter commentariat who claim never to have seen the like of it has happened before. And better or worse, depending on your point of view. Dramatic campaign speeches, futuristic technology, eye-catching stunts, surprise election results, quick changes of government, shock resignations, untimely deaths, chance meetings, sex scandals, money scandals, legal scandals have all been done before. Whoever is the next minister caught saying or doing something unprecedented, remember the speed cameras and the sand dunes and the toothpaste in the dark. Whenever the next unprecedented reshuffle happens, remember that at least nobody died in the middle of it. Whichever unprecedented scenes unfold during a by-election, watch to see if anybody leaves the polling station via a window. Whatever the next unprecedented war of words, be glad that it does not end in actual pistols at dawn. What follows is also not intended to be the 50 places which change politics. There are obviously far more than that. It is merely a collection of 50 places. It is, like all politics, inevitably subjective. I've no doubt you'll disagree with some I've chosen. Many of those involved will no doubt argue about their significance, from the aspiring party leader locked in the bathroom to the owners of the first prime ministerial legs to be seen on display. I hope at least some will be your cup of tea. Sorry about the milk.